hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. There's no such thing as a free lunch, either coming or going. It takes hard work to receive and achieve good things in this life. And on the other side, all of our choices will lead to consequences. They cost us. No actions are free. I used to say this to my children, and they still remember it. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. We used to chant it for family home evening. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. And we would be out in the garden when we did it. Well, I would like to thank my friend, Brett London, for sharing this simple and powerful story about consequences. Brett London began his legal career as a criminal prosecutor in the Orange County District Attorney's Office in California. This is back in the 80s. One of his first assignments was in the courtroom of Judge Ragnar Engabretson. I think I said that. I hope I said that right, Brett. And yeah, that was his real name. Now, Judge Engabretson has since passed on to his rest. Judge Engabretson was a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and at the time that Brett was working in his office, the judge was serving as a high counselor in his stake at the same time. Brett tells of a day when they had completed their work for the day. The phone rang. The court clerk answered the phone and then whispered to the judge. Judge Engabretson heard and then turned to Brett and asked him if he would remain while he handled a late arraignment. Brett agreed. Now, for those of you who don't understand legalese or the process, an arraignment is a criminal defendant's first appearance in court. At the arraignment, a defendant is advised of the charges against him. He is apprised of his constitutional rights, and he is given the opportunity to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Brett described what happened next. He said, quote, I was writing notes on my files when I heard the courtroom door open. I glanced behind me and noticed a 19-year-old young man enter. Judge Engabretson picked up the court file and announced, In the case of the people of the state of California versus Joseph Fielding Benson. Now, let me insert here. That was not the young man's real name, but this is the point. The name was no less distinctive and identifying. Well, Brett said, that got my attention, the name. He continued on. Judge Engabretson inquired, Are you Joseph Fielding Benson? The young man replied, Yes, sir. Judge Engabretson continued. That sounds like a Utah name. Are you from Utah? Yes, sir. That sounds like a Mormon name. 
Are you a Mormon? Brett said the defendant turned red, gulped, and replied, Yes, sir. Judge Engebretson continued, You are charged with drunk driving. You should know better. I'm a high counselor in my stake of the church, and Mr. London, the prosecutor sitting at the table next to you, is on the high council in his stake. Son, you are in trouble. Do you want to talk to Mr. London to see if you can resolve your case today? End of quote. Brett continued, the defendant did several double takes between the judge and me and finally answered, I think I need a lawyer. This young man, Brett said, was in court facing drunk driving charges when he should have been on a mission serving the Lord. He forgot that whether we do what's right or do what's wrong, consequences will follow. And he forgot to choose the right. Now, I tell you that story because I fully agree with Brother London. Consequences always follow our choices for good or ill. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of the world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we receive any blessing, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. There is hardly a day that goes by that I don't worry that my foolish actions in a moment of weakness or forgetfulness will hurt someone or worse, injure the Lord's work. I am constantly on my guard that I don't hurt somebody by what I am or by what I do. May the Lord bless us to be mindful there is no free lunch. In keeping with Come, Follow Me curriculum and the journey of the missionaries, the four missionaries going to the Lamanite mission, this story comes from their experience. It also is a very powerful lesson about what it means to be the Lord's minister. October the 10th, 1830, in a small town in Ohio, 15-year-old Lucy sat in the home of her employer, a Mrs. Abigail Daniels, tending to her weaving. There came a knock at the door. When young Lucy opened the door, there stood, she said, three well-dressed, nice-looking gentlemen. Well, Lucy invited them in, got them some chairs, and took their hats. As soon as they were seated, the young men began to share a remarkable message that the gospel of Jesus Christ had been revealed, restored anew. Angels had appeared and given authority for the gospel to be preached once more upon the earth. Suddenly, the lady of the house turned on her loom bench, shuttle in hand, and shook it in their faces. She told them to leave her house immediately as she would not have her children polluted with such doctrine. She called them impostors and deceivers and ordered them to leave. Well, they tried to reason with her, but to no avail. They then explained that they were very hungry and had eaten nothing all day. Notwithstanding the unspoken rules of frontier hospitality, the woman said, I have plenty, but nothing for you. 
At this point, young Lucy could take no more. I had been sitting there all this time, she said, listening to her foul tongue. I could stand it no longer, for I felt that they were servants of God as they said they were. Gentlemen, she said, my father lives one mile from here. He never turns anyone hungry from his door. Go there, and you will be fed and cared for. At that, Lucy gave them their hats and led them outside. She took them to the road and pointed the way to her father's house, and they were soon down the road and out of sight. When Lucy went back in the house, Mrs. Daniels turned her anger on the girl. But no matter. Those missionaries went to Lucy's father, and indeed, just as she said he would, he welcomed them, fed them, and listened to them. His household, his whole household, and many of his friends, including Lucy, were converted, baptized, and became some of the earliest stalwart converts to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ in Kirtland, Ohio. The three young strangers at the door, Oliver Cowdery, Parley P. Pratt, and Ziba Peterson. Lucy was Lucy Diantha Morley, daughter of Isaac Morley, the founder of the settlement of the San Pete in Utah, and the great patriarch in the faith of a numerous posterity down to the latest day. Now, I want to ask you a question as I share. This last story is actually two stories in sequence, one after the other. I have worked all week long on just these two stories, and I'm not done yet. It has been one of the most difficult combinations of stories I have ever written, but I knew I was looking at a diamond. I just couldn't see it. So I begin by asking you a question. The Lord never did or said anything by accident. Everything he did in the New Testament and said was calculated for the best good of all, both then in his day and forever. So as you listen to the story I'm about to tell you, I ask you this, why did the Lord do this? Evidently, just after Peter and John had come at Mary's bidding to the empty garden tomb, two disciples left Jerusalem for the village of Emmaus, about seven or eight miles distant. Not only does no one know for certain exactly what village is Emmaus in that country now, but little to nothing is known for certainty who these two disciples actually were. Only one of them was named, Cleopas. It is assumed that the other one was Luke, but we don't know. Well, as the two men walked, they communed and reasoned together. A stranger drew near to them on the road and asked them, What manner of communications are these which ye have one with another, as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou a stranger in Jerusalem, 
And hast thou not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he, the stranger, said unto them, What things? The two disciples then told him, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. They then told him how the chief priests had condemned Jesus and delivered him over to be crucified. They then revealed the source of their grief and sadness. Quote, but we trusted that it had been he who should have redeemed Israel. End of quote. You see what they're saying? They were going through a faith crisis. Their faith was shaken, and their hearts were grieved and troubled not just by what had happened, but also by rumors of angels and reports that Jesus was alive when they, with their mortal understanding, knew assuredly that he couldn't be alive. And at that point, the stranger said to them, O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? The stranger then opened up the scriptures and taught the words of the holy prophets concerning the mission and ministry of the Messiah. As he did, their hearts burned within them, and they knew the truth of his words and the power of that man. Well, evidently, this conversation must have lasted for miles. Because about this time, they approached the village of Emmaus. It was towards evening. And the stranger made as though to journey on. But the two disciples said, quote, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. End of quote. The mysterious stranger accepted their gracious invitation for hospitality, lodging, and food. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he was taken up out of their sight. It was Jesus, their Lord and Master. He was indeed alive. It was him all along. But their eyes were covered that they could not know him. This story does indeed attest that a resurrected being can eat and drink and hide his identity and look like a normal man. It may mean a lot of things. But to me, it means at least this. Cleopas and his companion invited a total stranger to abide with them and receive their hospitality. And in so doing, the Lord came too and gave them so much more than they gave him. Remember what the Lord said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What if they had turned the stranger away? What if they had just let him go on his way? 
Could it be that each time we literally or figuratively invite a stranger close to abide with us and receive our love, our comfort, and our kindness, it is he who at the end of the day comes to abide and we receive the greater comfort and love. And that, by the way, is an experience we can't wait to tell the whole world about, just like Cleopas and his companion. In my mind, that story is a final lesson and capstone in the Lord's ministry to say to all of us, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, a stranger, you have done it unto me. Be kind. Now, 18 centuries later, Henry Francis Light was born at Ednam, near Kelso, Scotland, the second son of Thomas and Anna Maria Light. It is believed by some that their marriage was a common law arrangement. When Henry was very young, his father abandoned the family. Shortly after that, Henry's mother moved to London, where she passed away, leaving Henry an orphan. He was taken in by the headmaster of his school and raised. In time, Henry went off to the prestigious Trinity College, Dublin. While there, as a student, he practiced his poetry and was awarded the English Prize Poem on three occasions. Now, while studying, Henry's intention was to study medicine. But, and I don't know the details, Henry felt called to the ministry. Accordingly, he prepared for and became an Anglican minister. It was during this formative time that Henry was called to the bedside of a fellow clergyman, a man named William Augustus Lehunt, who was dying. There was little solace to offer the doomed man, and he died shortly thereafter. The entire experience deeply affected Henry, and according to him, he never read the scriptures the same way after that, especially as his dying friend had repeatedly pleaded with Henry to, quote, abide with me. It is said by some that Henry was deeply inspired by those words and wrote the first verses of a poem entitled, Abide With Me. The year was 1820. In 1824, Henry became the minister in Brixham, a coastal fishing village in Devon. The unusually tall, handsome clergyman was an instant draw. So powerful and personal was his charm and style of preaching that it became necessary early on to add on to the church to accommodate all who wanted to hear him. Light was a man noted for his wit and human understanding, a born poet and an able scholar. He was an expert flute player, and according to his great-grandson, always had his flute with him. 
He spoke Latin, Greek, and French, enjoyed discussing literature, and was knowledgeable, I love this part, was knowledgeable about wildflowers, end of quote. Yet, for all of that, Henry was not a well man. He suffered with ill health all his life. Eventually, the chronic weakness of his lungs turned into tuberculosis. Yet, according to sources, Henry pressed on a devoted servant to his people and his family. He was often heard to say, somewhat lightly, it is better to wear out than to rust out, and he worked on. In the 1840s, England was evidently rife with religious dissension. That dissension came home to Henry's congregation when a number of his congregants walked out, left him, including at one point his entire choir. That abandonment, coupled with his declining health, brought him to a state of melancholy and to ponder deeply. It was not long after that that he wrote a poem in which he voiced the desire to write something that would be immortal, a hymn that would never die. The verse reads as follows. Some simple straw, yet spirit-moving lay, some sparkles of the soul that still might live when I was passed to clay. O thou, whose touch can lend life to the dead, thy quickening grace supply, and grant me, swan-like, my last breath to spend in song that may not die. End of quote. Henry continued to decline, to sink, until early September 1847, when he announced to his family that he wanted to preach to his congregation one last time. He was scheduled to leave on holiday to go to Italy. Well, given his condition, his family protested that the strain would be too much for him. But Henry persisted, and according to his daughter, preached a memorable and magnificent sermon on the Holy Communion. After that Sabbath meeting, that same afternoon, Henry Francis Light walked out of his home and went for a peaceful walk on the trails that bordered the magnificent seacoast. When he got back home, he went to his room and a short time later came out and gave to his family the poem that some believe he started in 1820 and finished with heart and soul in 1847. It was the poem from the heart of a dying man in the late evening of life who had known what it was like to be abandoned. Abide with me. Henry Francis Light died shortly thereafter. The last words on his lips as he passed were, Peace, joy. Henry never made it to his desired destination of Italy, but he did write the song that would become immortal and inspire billions. Abide with me, tis even time. 
Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.